Well, this morning, title for the message is Your Mission from God. Your Mission from God. Have you ever been sent on a mission to the grocery store? Oftentimes, uh, the husband is sent on a mission to the grocery store. I personally enjoy going to the grocery store. I like to eat food. Um, it's not a secret, I'll tell you. And when I go to the grocery store, I think about eating food. So it's a pleasant experience for me. I, her, my wife was telling me the other day, her, her parents, her mom used to be the one, uh, typically going to the grocery store. But once in a while, when she was making dinner, she'd forget a couple ingredients. And her dad was sent on a mission to the grocery store to get those items that were missing from dinner. So he would go out to the grocery store, but often he failed in his mission. <laughs> like me, he saw many wonderful things at the grocery store, <laughs> but he would forget about those specific items he was supposed to get for dinner. He would return home to his wife's chagrin and say, oh, oh I'm sorry, I didn't remember the whatever ingredients they were for dinner. Um, that is a mission fail. Uh, I'd like to say when I go to the grocery store and I'm on a mission for my wife, I always get those things my wife sends me to get. I just get a lot of other stuff in addition. <laughs> so I get a little distracted from my mission. We're not going to call it a mission fail, but perhaps a little distracted. My daughter is always very happy when I'm the one to go because the likelihood of ice cream entering our home <laughs> when I go to the grocery store, it increases significantly. So uh, it's a good thing when I go grocery shopping. But what's my point? My point is we can fail when we're given a mission. Uh, even a mission as simple or as silly as going to the grocery store. But we're given a greater mission from God. And that's what I want to look at today, is what is the mission that God has given us? And are we faithfully fulfilling that mission? The word mission itself, we need to understand what the word mission means, it comes from a Latin word, and it means sent to do a task. So there is a task that we were sent to do. That is what our mission is. The question is, are we fulfilling that mission? Are we doing what we're supposed to Sorry, I think my ears are too small. I don't know. So the outline today, what we're going to see is God's mission established, God's mission explained, and then God's mission empowered. God's mission established, God's mission explained, and God's mission empowered. And we should see from this passage we're going to look at, what is your mission from God? What is the mission that God has given you? So as I say that, you're thinking, I know where he's going to go. He's going to the Great Commission. And you're right. We're going to look at the Great Commission. Where, where do we find the Great Commission? Matthew 28 is one place we find the Great Commission, but it's not the account of the Great Commission we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Luke 24. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Luke 24... Verses 44 to 49. And that is the Great Commission account that we will be looking at today. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you 
that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So first thing we see here in this passage, verses 44 to 45, is God's mission established. God's mission established. The, the passage we have, looked at your text there, it says, now he said to them. Well, when is the now? Who is the he? And who's them that we're looking at? Well, we're in Luke 24. You can probably look at your Bible there and see, well, we're right about at the end of the Luke here. This is right near the end. This is probably after the resurrection of Christ, and you're right. In fact, the only portion left in the Gospel of Luke is the ascension of Christ in verses 50 to 53. So what we see here, and then the ascension account listed or shown to us in Luke, doesn't, is just a narrative without the words of Christ. So what we have in our passage today are the last words recorded by Luke in his Gospel. Now, is that significant? Well, I would say so. Someone's last words are very significant. This is something that Jesus wants to emphasize. Now, he was on earth and made many appearances after his resurrection. But this is the account that is especially highlighted to us. So, in Luke 24, if we look at the beginning of the chapter, if you just flip the page or across the page there, Luke 24 is all about the resurrection. We have 23 chapters up till now, but just one post-resurrection. The first 12 verses talk about the resurrection itself and the first discovery by some of the disciples and the Marys. And then we read about the road to Emmaus, an account I hope we're all familiar with, an amazing story of two men and Jesus meeting them on the road and what it would be like to be those men and have Jesus reveal himself to them. And then in verses 36 to 43, it's Jesus appearing to the disciples. Now, in verses 44, in verse 44 he's saying, this is what I told you would happen, everything I predicted, came true just like I said. That's the gist of what he's saying. Now, why is he having to say that? Why is he having to comfort them with these words? Well, in part, it's because they're still reeling from the whole fact that he was killed on a cross and then rose again. I mean, that was not something you see every day. Um, and so they're, in their minds, they're still absorbing this truth that this Christ, the one they have followed, believed in as the Son of God, was killed, and now he's back with us. And it is an amazing thing for them to grasp. In fact, let's look at 36 to 43 and his appearance to them, and it makes it clear how amazed they were. In verse 36, it says, 
while they were telling these things, these are the two men from the road to Emmaus, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst and said to them, peace, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. This is one of those scenes in Scripture that I would have loved to be there for. Um, to be able to see just the disciples completely freaked out, just, you know, Jesus is like, hands, look, and, you know, just showing them, look, feet, touch, touch here. And then they're still, it says, in joy and amazement and could not believe it, it says there in verse 41. And he's like, fish, watch, eat fish. And, you know, the way he had to condescend to them, to, to show them, look, it's really me, I have risen from the dead. This was an amazing thing and hard for the disciples to fully grasp. So he says to them in verse 44, this was probably not the same time, probably an interlude of time, but still they needed reassurance and comfort. But he says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all that was written about me and the law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms must be fulfilled. He was telling them, look, it's happened just as I said. And indeed, he had told them many times. I'll give you a few passages. Luke 9.22. You can jot these down if you'd like. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. He told them that. It's recorded in Luke 9.22. In Luke 17.25, Jesus said, but first he, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Again, he tells them, for I tell you that that which is written must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors for which that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Jesus told them many times, and they did not get it. Now, before we're too quick to throw the disciples under the bus and think, how could they possibly be so stupid? How could they not understand it? He told them clearly he would suffer and die and rise again. Why didn't they get it? Well, there's a couple other passages in Luke that talk about Jesus predicting his suffering. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. And we'll look at verses 44 to 45. Luke 9, 44 to 45. This is to his disciples, we see in verse 43. He says, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him 
about this statement. Here we see it was concealed from them. So there's a reason they weren't understanding it. God was not allowing them to completely understand it. There's another passage over in Luke 18. Turn over there, Luke 18. Starting in verse 31. Luke 18, 31. And he, Jesus, took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Multiple times, Jesus told them what would happen. Multiple times he said, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to even die, but I will rise again. And they did not understand it. And that was, at least in large part, because God had concealed the full meaning to them. They could not bear it. They could not take the weight of that. So God hid the full meaning from them. And I would often wrestle with this. Well, why did God tell him? Why did Jesus tell him, this is what's going to happen, and then, but you're not going to understand it. You don't understand it right now. I just, I couldn't figure that out. But I believe the answer is found in our passage. Turn back to Luke 24. This time, so Luke, again, 24 and then 44 and 45. So look now at 45. We haven't read yet. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This time, Jesus opened their minds to understand what he was telling them. And he could tell them, remember, when I was with you, I told you this many times. And they could remember that, yeah, you said something about that, but I didn't know what you were talking about. Now, Jesus opened their minds to understand it, because now they can handle it. After the resurrection, they can handle it because they've been through the good news part of the story of Jesus rising from the dead. And we know that they got it this time. We see it because of the book of Acts. We see them in the book of Acts saying, hey, look at the prophets. Look how they predicted Jesus' suffering. And so they certainly got it. Jesus at this time knew, okay, I can tell you, I established this plan long ago. It was all part of the plan. It was not plan B that Jesus would die. It wasn't, oh, we hoped the Father, Son, Holy Spirit got together and let's, let's send Jesus and let's hope this works out well. No, it was the plan that Jesus would suffer and die. And that Jesus can tell them now, this is just like I told you. And it happened just as the Old Testament has said. And so they could have confidence now that you're right. This isn't just a post-date interpretation of the Old Testament because it suits what happened. You told us this before it happened, even though we didn't understand it. Now we get it. And that can give them confidence that Jesus did and accomplished all that God had set out to do. Now we see here Jesus lists three things. Look at verse 44. He says, written about me 
in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And he lists three different sections of the Old Testament. This is the only place in scripture it's mentioned quite in this way, but this would be um, not an uncommon way to think of scriptures, of the law, the prophets, or they would say the writings, law, prophets, writings. Now, Psalms was the first and biggest, the largest book of the writings. So this may be shorthand, Jesus, for saying the writings, or he just might be saying the Psalms themselves because so many prophecies about Christ were in the Psalms. But either way, Jesus is saying, all three sections of the Old Testament talk about me. And what he's emphasizing is the comprehensiveness of the Old Testament's, Old Testament's testimony. This wasn't one place somewhere in the Old Testament. It mentioned comprehensively the Old Testament pointed to Christ. God established his plan in the Old Testament, and he did it comprehensively through Scripture. And so we see God is working out a plan in this world, and he has done so from the very beginning. So verse 44 and 45, we see God's mission established. Now in verses 46 to 48, God's mission explained. And he said to them, it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. So now Jesus will explain God's mission. And you can't, we can't see it here in English. It's hard to see, but in the Greek, after the statement it is written, there are three verbs in the infinitive case. Three infinitive verbs, which is a verb without a subject or tense. And it really pops out in the Greek. Not that I'm a Greek expert, but uh, with the help of tools, uh, it's clear this is what's being said. So why did Luke write it like this? Because there's three aspects of God's plan that he wants to emphasize. So each verb stands for an aspect of God's plan. So what are these three verbs? What are the three aspects of God's plan? Well, the first is the suffering of Christ. It is written that the Christ would suffer. This was God's plan. And that the Jews should have expected this, that Jesus would suffer, but they did not. And you all know that they expected a Messiah to come and kick out the Romans, to come to rule, to be a king. They did not expect a suffering servant, but they should have. They should have understood the Old Testament. In Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Isaiah 53, a clear description of the rejection and death of the Messiah. They should have seen this in the symbolism of the Passover lamb that the Messiah would be a sacrificial lamb for them, the spotless lamb of God. They should have understood the symbolism of the bronze serpent raised on a staff by Moses. These are things in the Old Testament that pointed to the suffering of Christ. From the very beginning, from Genesis, when Jesus curses the serpent, saying that you shall bruise him on the heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. An early indication of the suffering of the Messiah. So this was predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament. The second verb here is the resurrection. He will rise again from the third day. That also was written. A couple of examples, we won't turn to them right now, but Psalm 16.10, it reads, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. 
Psalm 110, verse 1. 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you an en- your enemies a footstool for your feet. A couple verses that point to a future resurrection of the Messiah. And yet, you, we may think, well, that's just a couple verses there. Um, how much were they supposed to get this, that Jesus was going to rise again? But we need to look at the bigger scope of the Old Testament and what the prophet said about the Messiah coming in glory. To say that the Messiah would come in glory means if we understand that he had to suffer and die, well, then he had to be risen again if he was to come in glory. So they should have understood that there was a glorious day of the Messiah, and when they understood it in conjunction with the suffering Messiah, they would have understood, yes, there would be a resurrection of the Christ. In fact, just look up a little bit, still in Luke 24, when Jesus was talking to the men on the road to Emmaus, he explains to them, look down in verse 25 and 26. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? The prophets spoke about the Messiah entering into his glory. First suffering and then entering in his glory, necessitating a resurrection. These things were prophesied. These things were written. Jesus says, it is written. It has been written for them. That second aspect of God's plan, prophesied from the beginning, was fulfilled through Christ. That's two of the infinitive verbs here, but there's one more. And it is the proclamation of Christ. It's in verses 47 to 48. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. This verse, these two verses contain much amazing, astounding truth. And in these verses, we see God's mission to you. What is God calling the church to do? God is sending us on a task. What is that task? The first two aspects of God's plan we read here, that Christ would suffer, that Christ would rise from the dead. That was not your task to accomplish. God accomplished that task. Now he did it in part through sinful men who killed Christ, but God accomplished that plan. But the third aspect of God's plan of redemption is the proclamation of the saints to the world. And that alone should should amaze us, should astound us. We are part of God's redemptive plan in the world. Not the death and resurrection of Christ, but to tell that message to the world. And that is God's mission for us. Let's look specifically at what he says. He says that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name. There can be forgiveness of sins. And that is another way to say salvation. Salvation is the forgiveness of sins and that we can be freed from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin in our lives. We need to proclaim the message of forgiveness of sins to the world. Now, obviously, that also entails we need to tell people that 
they need forgiveness of sins, that they have sinned against the holy God, and they must come to him for forgiveness. But Luke explains it in the words of Christ here very well in saying it's repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness comes when a person repents. And those two are tied together. Repentance is the changing of one's mind. The changing of one's mind that results in the change of how someone lives. And salvation is a change. It's a change in your expectations, in your desires. It's a complete changing of mind of what is important to you in this life. Now, what about faith? I thought forgiveness of sins comes through faith. Absolutely. But biblical authors see repentance as faith as inseparably linked. Repentance and faith go together. So sometimes you see only faith mentioned. Sometimes you see only repentance mentioned. That's because the two go together. When God gives us faith to follow him, he also does the work of regeneration. We also there is, have repentance occurring in our lives. So we are to proclaim this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if you are wrestling with that a little bit, well, repentance, is that really part of salvation? I know a couple books by this pastor named John MacArthur <laughs> that are excellent on this topic. So I encourage you, Gospel According to Jesus, Gospel According to Apostles, Gospel According to Paul, I think even came out recently, um, talks more about this. And certainly, the epistle of James speaks much about how life change will happen when someone is truly saved. So that's what is said here. We proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins, and then it says, what? In his name. In the name of Jesus Christ. Christ is our message, and that's where salvation comes from. It is our goal as believers to proclaim the name of Christ throughout this world. And we know in Acts 4.12, there is salvation under no other name given among men, whereby we must be saved. It is through Jesus Christ alone. And then we see here, it's also, it's a proclamation. That's the main verb here. God's mission is telling forth the gospel. The Greek word here is caruso, to announce, to preach, to proclaim forth. And that is what our mission is, to proclaim it. We can't get, change people's hearts to believe. Oh, how I wish at times I could change people's hearts and get them to believe. But we cannot do that. Our, message, our mission is to proclaim it, to preach it, to tell it to other people. Now, in some ways, praise God, that's not our responsibility to change people's hearts. The responsibility and pressure would be too great for us. We can trust that to God. Our mission is to proclaim it out. Now, what I want you to notice here, Jesus is saying, remember, thus it is written, Christ would suffer, Christ would raise again, and that proclamation would be made to all the nations. God's desire for people around the world to worship him was true from the very beginning. It is not that salvation was only for the Jews and now, now other people can be saved. And let's look at God's plan in the Old Testament a little bit. Let's turn to a few passages. First, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. 
a key passage of God's promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. And this is actually to Abram. His name had not been changed yet. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Now get this, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was the beginning of what was supposed to be Israel being a proclamation to the nations. They were to be a light to the nations and that other nations would be blessed through them. This is spelled out a little more. Exodus, turn over there, next book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to look at verses 5 to 6 of Exodus 19. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. They were to be a kingdom of priests. A priest goes in between God and the people. And Israel was supposed to be this nation, to be a light to the nations. As they obeyed God and they would say, what nation is there like Israel? And who has a God like their God? They were not faithful to do that. But God had in mind the nations. It's not as though he did not care. He was using Israel as priests before him. Now turn over to 1 Kings chapter 8. And this is a prayer of dedication for the temple. This is Solomon. Chapter 8, verses 41 to 43. Solomon's prayer of dedication. There's a recognition about the foreigner here. Verse 41, And concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you and do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. There is a desire that all the nations would hear about God and would come to worship him. We could also look at passages in Psalms. If you want to jot these down, Psalm 22, 27 to 28. God desires those of every nation to turn to the Lord and worship him. Psalm 67, the Lord calling out to the nations, a missionary psalm if there ever was one. <clears throat> psalm 67. Isaiah 42, God called Israel to be a light to the nations. Malachi 111. 
in the midst of Malachi's condemnation of Israel's sins, he states that one day all the nations will come to worship God in the future. But God's mission, the point hopefully you're getting from this, again and again, God's mission is to the whole world. He wants to see people around the world be worshipers of him. Now in this passage, you can go back to Luke 24, it says, from Jerusalem. This is beginning in Jerusalem. In Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Luke spells it out a little more uh, fully there. But where previously the nations were to come to Israel and see them as a light and worship in the temple in Jerusalem, now Jesus says we are going out. The plan is to go out to the nations. No longer will everyone come during this time, but we are to go out to the world. And the disciples, it says, were to be witnesses of these things, as we are as well. We are to be witnesses of these things and go out to all the nations. So I want to, as we think about this, draw a couple implications from this passage. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean um, for missions now? First, proclamation of God's word is critical. We must be proclaiming God's word to the nations. Whether that is someone going to Chad, someone going to Japan, or you over lunch with a coworker, proclaiming truth about God to them. That is how the gospel gets out, and that is how the message is heard. By proclaiming it, we have to open our mouths. Secondly, another implication is the goal of missions is forgiveness, repentance for forgiveness of sins. There are some who would say that relieving poverty should be the goal of missions. And certainly, we need to show love towards others. Our God is a compassionate God. We see others in need. We need to show love to them. But for those who place that as the goal of missions are mistaken, because that is not what Jesus tells us to do. Our goal is to proclaim Christ. Their greatest need, the people's greatest need in this world is not that they would have a house. It's not that they would have good food to eat. People's greatest need is their salvation. If hell was not real, then maybe relieving poverty is the goal of missions. But hell is real. And heaven's real. And that lasts a lot longer than our time on earth. Because that is true, the goal of missions is the gospel. That is our message, and that is what we are sending people to do. We don't ignore the poor. We don't think that it doesn't matter, but that is not our aim. Our aim is the proclamation of Christ. And that is what Jesus is telling us is our mission. Another implication I want to make and, and see here, it's to all the nations. I had a pastor come up to me at Shepherd's Conference once and say, you know, our church is not into uh, missions uh, outside of our city. We're focusing on our city, and that's all we're going to care about. Um, that's, that's all that's really important to us. Well, that's not what Jesus said should be important to us. We need to make efforts for worldwide evangelism, worldwide strengthening of the church. We can't think only 
of who's on our street. We must think of those who are on our street and our coworkers, but we must also think about the millions around the world who do not know Christ, who do not have the opportunity to be in a church to worship together with others. Jesus said it's to go to all the nations, and we must be faithful to be a part of that. Another implication, another thing we need to see here is that the mission is more than evangelism. This account of the Great Commission focuses on evangelism, repentance for forgiveness of sins. But as you know, the Matthew 28 passages talks about making disciples as well. Building the church, strengthening the church must be part of missions. And in fact, it is through that that other missionaries can be sent from those churches as well. I know churches in China that are sending out missionaries. Are they prepared? Are they going with the right message? And so we need to be strengthening churches overseas. As you know, a big emphasis of our church is training pastors in other countries. And that is part of the Great Commission. It is seeing God's name proclaimed, building up the church so that God's name can even go out from there as well. So we must be faithful to share about Christ, whether that's frontline evangelism or whether that's strengthening the church. That is the mission that we have. Well, I got pretty into that, so we'll have to hit our last point pretty quickly. Third point here in verse 49, God's mission empowered. We saw God's mission established, God's mission explained, now God's mission empowered. It says, And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus has given his disciples, and really the church, all of us, an amazing enormous task. Proclaim his name to all the nations. Hearing that, we should be a bit overwhelmed. Think, how in the world is this even possible? And we, it's right to feel that way, but we must see what Jesus has said. You will receive power. You will be clothed from power from on high. This is clearly the Holy Spirit that is being talked about. As we see in the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts where Luke tells about the gospel going out and the beginning and growth of the church. And it is always through the power of the Holy Spirit that this is occurring. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was promised. And now, in a special way, after, after Pentecost, all believers being dwelt by the Holy Spirit. God with us. And that is the power we have in going out and telling the gospel message. It's not in our own strength. Praise God that we have his Holy Spirit working through us or else we could accomplish nothing. So application is hopefully pretty clear. First, if, you, if this seems foreign to you, oh, the mission of Christ for us is gospel proclamation. Well, that's not my mission in life. I, my mission is to be happy or is to be rich or I want a lot of people to know me or I don't even know what my mission in life is. Well, perhaps you need to reconsider what is important to me? Am I really even a follower of Christ? If Christ's mission means nothing to me, then maybe I'm not a follower at all. And I'm not saying you follow Christ, you can have a purpose in life. That is not what Scripture says. That's not what I'm saying. You follow Christ because He deserves your worship. He is the King and we must bow before Him. 
and when we do that, then we follow his mission. And that is to proclaim him. Now, most of you know the Lord, and when you hear this mission from Christ, you say, yes, I want to do that. I want to obey the mission that God has given me. How do I do that? Well, for some of you, consider overseas missions. For some of you, that may be what God has for you. If, especially if you're younger and seminary might be or is currently something that you're doing, that could be something for you. I do believe God uses trained men to teach his word. And so I do believe a seminary education is, is important to do missions. And that could be you. I ask you to consider that today if God wants you to go overseas. The needs are great over there. But many, if not most, say, well, that's not me. Um, whether it's my stage in life, whether it's just the circumstances God has me in, what do I do for missions, for, for God's missions for us? Well, certainly support those who are going. We have, I think, close to 100 families around, uh, around that number from our church. Support them so that they can go out. Pray for them on a regular basis. Pray that God would use them to teach the gospel. Pray that God would strengthen them as they learn languages, adjust to cultures, build relationships. Encourage missionaries when they come back. Encourage them when they're in the field. Emails, letters, notes. Be part. It's not an individual thing. God's mission is accomplished by the whole church, whether the person going or the person supporting and encouraging. We can be part of God's mission either way to the nations. And then finally, I would say this. The United States is one of the nations that the gospel is going to. God's calling you to be a witness where you are at. And you have people on your streets or people at your work or people in your family that need to hear about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's open our mouths. Let's proclaim the truth about Christ to them. God has sent you to where you are right now. And we need to be a faithful witness of Christ right there. So God has a mission for the church. Proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it's a, it's a mission that goes to you. The question is, are you being faithful to it? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of Christ that are an encouragement to us, that your plan is clear, and that you have even included us in your plan of the gospel going out. And we give you thanks that you have given us the Holy Spirit to strengthen the ministry, Lord. Father, may each one of us be faithful to stay on mission, to remember what you have called us to do. Father, help us to remember that eternity stands before us. Lord, and we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. God, make us faithful witnesses for you while we are here on this earth. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.